0: Okay, good morning. Lovely to see you all. Um, as Rhiannon said, my name is Jeff. For those of you who don't know me, I'm part of the preaching team here at C3. And uh, today is an exciting Sunday because we're starting a new series, really interesting series called You Asked. And in, uh, you know, a few months back, uh, Steve said, you know, what questions would you like us to discuss? So the, the, it was kind of opened up, people emailed in lots of different questions. And then we've chosen those questions, and each of us has taken a different one. To speak on through this series. Um, you've given a, a kind of term card or a, a list of those messages a few weeks back on Vision Sunday. Some great messages coming up. So next week, um, you've got um, you asked about serving God through your work. Then there's a message all about the environment and the Christian response to the environment. Then something about um, what's faith and what's presumption. The difference between faith and presumption. Um, a talk about money, a talk about sex. And then Steve's going to finish off the series talking about what happens when we die. So some fantastic, meaty, interesting issues for us to get involved with. Um, And part of the purpose of this this series is so that we can find answers to these questions. Some of them very kind of life practical questions, some of them quite theological questions, like this morning's question. Um, So that's part of the purpose. But part of the purpose is also that we might have an answer so that if people ask us the question that we've got something to say. You know, the Bible says that we should be ready to give a response and an account of our faith. And actually, this is partly to equip us so that when those circumstances arise, that we're actually prepared, we've got something we can say. But also, it is a great opportunity to bring people. If you know people that you think might be particularly interested in one of these questions, perhaps you know someone that's very interested about the environment, you may have had conversations with them. We'll bring them along in a couple of weeks to hear Ruth Valero, because she will be amazing. So use this series, you know, if you hear a message on a Sunday morning, like today, and you think, oh, that was, that was good, hopefully. Um, you know, bring people along this evening to come back and hear it, because, you know, use this series or, or forward them the message because they're all online. So use this series as a resource for yourself, but also um, for kind of extending to people beyond the borders. I did happen to notice when I looked at this term card um, a few weeks ago that my message or my, my title is twice as long as everybody else's. So my title is, you asked, how could a God of love order the killing of so many people in the Old Testament? And it only seemed fair that as my title was twice as long, my talk should also be allowed to be twice as long. So I'll be speaking for an hour this morning. Um, so sit back for the ride. Now, um, even if I had an hour, in fact, even if I had three hours, even if I'd done this message in three parts and you were about to get, you know, part of the second... Um, three hours wouldn't be enough to fully unpack this question. This is a a very difficult question. Three hours, in fact, half an hour might be more than enough um, to kind of demonstrate my understanding of this question, but it's, it's a very big, deep question, okay? This question about how can a God of love order the killing of so many people in the Old Testament and related questions is one of the greatest theological conundrums. You know, we, we believe in a God of love. We talk on Sundays about a God of love, abounding in love and mercy. We sing about him, we sing to him, we pray to him. Most Christians, if they were asked to describe God in one word, would say, well, love, it's obvious. If you had to, say, if you had to boil it all down to one word, love. But how do we marry that, that belief that we have and that faith that we have with the God that we read about in the Old Testament part of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. But bearing in mind, the Old Testament is two thirds of the Bible. You know, it's, it's a large portion. It's not just a few little bits dotted around that we can just kind of push aside. The Old Testament is two thirds of the Bible. And in much of the Old Testament, God seemingly does terrible things, some of which we're gonna read about in a few minutes. So how do we square these terrible things with this belief we have in a God of love? So um, I hope you find the talk interesting and useful. Um, It will be quite challenging in places, so we're going to start right off with quite a challenging quote from Richard Dawkins, and this is from his book, The God Delusion. So um, it's in your notes. If you um, didn't get outline notes, I should have said, and you'd like some outline notes with some of the verses and passages, just put your hand up, um, and one of the Connect team will give you those. But this is from The God Delusion. It says this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Um, jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynist, homophobic, racist, um, sorry, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's a pretty strong statement now if you've not picked this up um, Richard Dawkins is an atheist okay so he's not coming and speaking next Sunday but he's um, and that's why he refers to him as character from fiction and he's not just an atheist he's an evangelistic atheist he is someone who's dedicated a huge portion of his life and energy to try to dispel what he sees as myths about Christianity and to basically stop people believing in God um, But it has to be acknowledged that whilst I, of course, wouldn't agree with all these statements, and I'll come on to why, you know, some of these labels, you know, even God himself refers to himself as being a jealous God, so some of them are, you know, accurate in that sense, and all of them can certainly be justified by passages in the Old Testament. What I mean by that is, it's not just that Richard Dawkins has sat down and just got all the insults he can, and put them in a paragraph. He has chosen particular words that refer to particular events in the Old Testament. And we're going to come on to some of those events. So next in your notes, you've got this passage from Deuteronomy. So this is God's law being passed down to um, his people. And he says this, and he's talking about as the people go into the promised land. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. These are different people groups, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. As the Lord your God has commanded you. So this is a command from God to completely destroy these people groups. And this isn't an isolated passage. This isn't just a bad day. This is something you find throughout the Old Testament. Um, I'm a music teacher and a song that I often do with the kids at school in year seven. Um, is Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. You wanna know that song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho? Jericho, and then, and the wall came tumbling down. Yeah, great song, they love it. As part of the lesson, I give them a bit of the context of it, the fact that they had to go marching around the wall seven times, then the walls came tumbling down, great story. I don't tend to go on and talk about what actually happened after the walls fell down. And actually, on reflection, that's a decision I'm quite happy with, because It is is quite disturbing because, you know, this is what it says in the passage. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. And I, in my music lessons, don't really want to get into why God was so keen on killing all these poor donkeys. Because it just doesn't, doesn't feel helpful. So... How do we square these things together? These repeated statements in the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament and New Testament of God, who is abounding in love, full of mercy, and yet seeing these events sanctioned by God. And what about the teaching of Jesus? Jesus encourages us to love our neighbor. When he's talking about who our neighbor is, he uses the example of the Samaritans, who are this hated people group, seen as heretics. And yet we were said to love them. And he said, love your enemies. And how is it that Jesus teaches us to love our enemies in the New Testament, whereas in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to destroy their enemies? How do we marry these two things together? Now, that is really the question we're looking at. I could go into perhaps quite a bit more detail to kind of motivate this question further. But actually, I don't think that's necessary. I think we all get the premise of this question. It's probably a question you may have asked yourself at some point. Put simply, we could boil the question down maybe to this. What changes then between the Old Testament and the New Testament? You know, on the whole, Christians in church, we're quite happy with the New Testament. You know, Jesus is great. We love, you know, the stories of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the the stories of how he interacts with people and the, the model that is for our lives. We absolutely can subscribe to that. And the the example of the early church, similarly, we find very easy to say, yeah, that that model of community, a community that supports and strengthens itself, but also reaches out to the world around them, that is a great model that we can easily take on board and live out in the 21st century. And the same for the practical, moral teaching that you find through the letters. Um, It's the Old Testament where most of these difficult passages exist. You know, the Old Testament on the whole is very difficult. Apart from the Psalms, we all like the Psalms. Well, we all like some of the Psalms, because, of course, some of the Psalms are very nice and talk about God abounding in love. But there is still quite a lot of destroying of enemies going on in the Psalms as well. So even in the lovely Psalms, there are still challenges with the Old Testament. So what is it that changes, essentially, between the Old Testament and the New Testament? So I've got for you this morning three different possible answers to this question. And the first most obvious answer, well, what changes? Is it God that changes? Okay? Okay. Does God change? Now, um, without getting too political, I think it would be fair to say that many people across this nation and the world are hoping to see quite a transformation in the character of Donald Trump in the coming weeks and months. Okay? So, you know, people said, well, we're, we're very much hoping that the Donald Trump that we have seen in the election cycle is different from the Donald Trump that we see now he's in the actual White House. Now, whether that happens or not remains to be seen. But perhaps... The same was true of God. Perhaps there is this change that happens in God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Perhaps he gets a bit more perspective as time goes on. He calms down a bit, maybe. Perhaps he has a son and fatherhood agrees with him. Perhaps he becomes more loving, more measured. Perhaps he learns from his past mistakes and we find this kind of, you know, God 2.0 in the New Testament, which is much better. Now, obviously, that's a very simple answer to the question. The problem is... So the Bible makes it perfectly clear that that is not the case. Repeatedly, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it says that God does not change. Here's one example among many from Malachi um, chapter 3. I, the Lord, do not change. It could not be put more simply. And actually, it's, it's fundamentally essential to our faith that we accept that God doesn't change. It is something in the Godness of being God that you don't change. You see, if God changed and was different then, and then he's different now, and then... Who knows what it will be like tomorrow and in the future? Which God do we worship? Which God do we put our faith in? It is something unique, but also essential to the character of God that he is unchanging throughout all time and all history. Also, we can't seek to drive a wedge between the God who we see in the Old Testament and Jesus who we see in the New Testament. It's not some kind of good cop, bad cop scenario. You know, you've got the, you know, the bad cop in the Old Testament, then good cop comes along and, you know, going to get the wheedles the answer out of the, the, whoever. You know, that's not what's going on. You, you know, the, the character and the person of God throughout the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is the same. It is one character, totally unified. And the Bible makes that clear. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, Jesus doesn't come into existence at the beginning of the New Testament in the manger in Bethlehem. You know, he was pre existing all of creation. He was there through the Old Testament and through the New Testament. So, if God doesn't change, then what does? Well, this leads on to the second argument, which is a bit more detailed um, and a bit more challenging. This is the second argument. Perhaps our revelation of God through Scripture. what changes what I mean by this is it our understanding of God and the way that that understanding of God is expressed by the writers of the Bible does that change as time goes on now we believe as a Christian community we believe that the Bible is the truth we believe it is God's Word and that is stated clearly in the Bible in a number of places Old Testament and New Testament here in 2 Timothy it says this all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness all scripture is god breathed old testament and new testament it is god's word but we could start to argue of course breath doesn't exist by itself breath exists within flesh and bone and blood and sinew and muscle all those things together contain the breath and in the same way god's word is very God, it is written and inspired by God, but it was also written by the physical hands of physical human beings at different points in human history. Men from different places, from different times, who would have had different understandings of the world. And in the same way that our minds are infected by the world we understand that we live in, so their minds would have similarly been um, affects it and that would have affected the way they wrote that would how that's how the argument would go so the question is this were some of the men who wrote the bible notably some of these difficult passages of the old testament were they in some ways ignorant so that all the old test even though the old testament expresses truths about god it's not a full revelation of his character and his purposes that full revelation only comes through the person of jesus now this is a theology that many would sharply disagree with for reasons that I will come on to, and it's, it's called the theology of progressive revelation. And this is the concept that certain sections of the Bible that were written later contain a fuller revelation compared to the earlier sections. So it starts off all a bit uncertain, and then as you go through the Old Testament and then into the New Testament, the revelation of God becomes more true and more accurate. Now this theology can certainly be used to explain some of these passages, so when you look at these passages you say, well the way the writers are writing shows they didn't fully understand what was going on. That's the way it would be used. But it's a difficult theology to accept. Um, It's most widely accepted probably with reference to something like Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 1 talks about the creation of the world and it talks about it as a series of seven days in which the world was created. Now, most Christians that I've spoken to about this, I wouldn't say most Christians, full stop, but most Christians I've spoken to would probably say they're unsure about Genesis 1. They they would most likely think that perhaps it contains truth. It's the truth that God is the creator. Not just that, but that he's the intentional creator of a perfect world. But they wouldn't necessarily subscribe to the fact that it happened in seven consecutive days. They would say it isn't historically or scientifically accurate. It's... But it does contain truth. And that's a fairly widely held belief. You know, the writer obviously had no understanding of astrophysics or all the other things they would have had to understand in order to write an accurate description of how the universe came into existence that we now understand through science. Um, and even if he had had that, even if God had given him that amazing ability to understand things um, about that, then his, it would have meant nothing to his audience because it was completely different from where they were. So instead, It it contains the central truths of God as creator, but it couches it in language that is understandable and in a story, in a literary form that is understandable to the people of his age, a creation story. So the question is well, can you then extend this argument? And obviously, people do. So, where, you know, if we say, well, the writer of Genesis was ignorant in some ways of scientific processes, where does the writer's ignorance end? You know, And this is one of the dangers of the theology that we'll get onto, because you can say, well, if it it doesn't end here, does it end here? Does it end here? Does it end here? And we can extend further and further into the Bible. But let's skip forward a bit. What about Noah? Some people would question, it's a reasonable question, could the flood really have covered the entire earth? You know, not so many centuries ago, most people believed the earth was flat, and if you sailed too far, you'd go off the end. How could people with such a limited understanding of what the earth actually was, or even the shape of the earth, have been able to get their minds around the concept of whether or not these these kind of climatic events could happen that would mean the whole earth was engulfed in a flood, let let alone when you get into the details about how Noah would go around gathering animals from all parts of the earth and putting them on a boat. Now, again, you could say, well, whether, whether this passage is absolutely True, it contains essential truths about God, about his person, about his heart towards people, about his wanting to, to save Noah, and about his purposes. And that the details aren't important. And the challenge is that the further you write, read into the Old Testament, you can keep doing this. One of the interesting things that many people say about the Old Testament is that as you read it, you realize that the writers write about God through an ancient world mindset. So when you look at other civilizations that were around that, that time or in um, kind of the ancient world, they see God and they see man's relationship with God in a particular way. And most of the ancient civilizations understood events that happened in their lives, good or bad, as an expression of how God felt towards them. So if something good happened, there was a good harvest, or they had victory in battle, or they had a child who was healthy, or whatever, if something good happened, it meant the gods were pleased with them. If something bad happened, there was a flood or a famine or a drought or an invasion of a foreign army, then basically the gods were angry with them. And there are many examples of this through ancient literature. One of my favorite stories is the story of the Odyssey, which um, some of you know is quite close to my heart as a story. Um, But that whole story of Odysseus is based around this ancient world mindset. You know, Odysseus had this great victory in Troy, beat the Trojans, but then didn't give the praise so the gods didn't give them the proper sacrifices, instead took all the glory for himself and said, Look at me, I'm an amazing warrior. And so the gods decided to punish him, and Poseidon sent this huge storm to wreck his ship and destroy his crew and leave him wandering for ten years before he could get back home. That is the story of the Odyssey in a nutshell. And they didn't understand these big storms of just climatic events that happened because of the kind of confluence of different weather streams. They understood it as an expression of the God's anger. Now this isn't our theology, this is not a theology that now we subscribe to. When terrible natural disasters happen in the world, we don't, or I hope we don't, see those or interpret those as God's divine judgment on those nations. So when there's famine in this area, or whether there's a tsunami in this area, we don't think that's God's judgment, we, we pray for those people. We do what we can, maybe to give money or to do anything practical we can. Our heart goes out to those people. Now, if we believed it was God's divine judgment, it would be wrong for us to do that. But actually, we don't believe that it's God's divine judgment. That's not how we read those situations. It isn't our theology. But many people say, well, it draws parallels with the theology of the Old Testament, that ancient world mindset. That when people turn from God, disaster comes their way. When they turn back to God, then disaster. God, good things happen to them, and God often punishes the wicked nation and uses God's people to mete out that justice. Like Joshua, he's meeting out the justice to those that have angered him. Now, um, this argument would go, and this is what the, you know: some people would believe, and they would see a progression through the Old Testament. So they would say that as you go through the Old Testament, it starts off very much with this ancient world mindset. But towards the middle and towards the end, you begin to see more and more of this theology developing that is much more like the New Testament theology, a God who is abounding in love, who is merciful and compassionate. And by the New Testament, we see that we are not the means for meeting out God's judgment. Instead, we are those to be called as God's people to be agents of grace. And that is the purpose of God's people. So this is a theology that in some ways quite neatly answers this question, or at least offers some answers to what is a difficult question. However, it is also a very troubling theology for various reasons. Convenient though it might seem, there are many problems with it and many challenges to it. Principally, because very rightly, it can be considered to fundamentally undermine the validity of scripture as God's word. You know, as soon as we start saying, well, this bit we can tinker, we can take this little bit here, and we can take that bit, this bit's wrong, ignore that, push that aside, you know, you have to push quite a lot aside. You know, Genesis one is possibly a different case because it's such a scientific technical thing that would have to be described and it would be meaningless it would have been meaningless to the people at the time. Whereas much of the Old Testament is historical record, intended to be an accurate historical record that would have been fully understandable. So to just write it off as misunderstanding seems a little bit easy. Also, if we were to take this theology seriously and engage with it, we would then have to significantly and fundamentally reinterpret the way we considered many of the heroes of faith in the Old Testament. So if you take a character like Joshua, he's no longer this great hero of faith who is doing God's work and is a brave and courageous warrior. Suddenly, he becomes someone who's misguided, maybe even deluded, who does terrible things mistakenly believing they're God's will. And that leads then to further challenges because these people are referred to in the New Testament as being heroes of faith. So then do we have to say, well, okay, does that mean therefore that the people who are writing this part of the New Testament, they also were misunderstanding? So you see, as soon as we start this, does this misunderstanding, does this, it just spreads. And there are people that have started on this path and then very quickly look at the New Testament and say, well, of course the virgin birth didn't necessarily happen, or maybe the miracles could be explained away by people suddenly getting out their packed lunches and sharing them, you know, all these different things. And ultimately, people say, well, did the resurrection even happen? Perhaps the resurrection is just a metaphor or a way of describing this new hope that was born in the disciples. And of course, as soon as we get anywhere near that territory, what we have done is completely undermined the foundations of our faith. As Paul puts, and he couldn't put it much more clearly than he does to the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, if Christ was not resurrected, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Our faith is built on a confidence in Scripture. So if, even though it might be easy sometimes to just dismiss parts of Scripture, if we do that too readily and too quickly, suddenly we bring forth a whole load of other issues. So that isn't really a satisfactory answer, certainly in and of itself. So if God doesn't change if the revelation of the Old Testament and the New Testament are largely consistent then perhaps we need a third challenge or a third change and I think the third issue is this something needs to change in our perspective our perspective one problem that we have and this is the same problem as people before us people after us we see things from a very narrow limited perspective we like to believe that we have great understanding, we look wider and we look as wide as we can. But actually, the current trends and the current mindset of our age actually informs everything we think about. We see through that lens that is the current mindset of our age. In the same way we could say about the ancient world, the same is true for us. And we try to discern and see God clearly, but we have to recognize that we do look through this end, this, this, this lens of the current age. You know, God is so much bigger and greater than we can start to comprehend. We've said it, we've sung it this morning, we sing it most Sundays, but actually it is a fundamental truth that sometimes we don't really fully appreciate the weight of. God is so much bigger and greater than we can start to comprehend. His purposes are so much greater than we begin to imagine. His purposes are the salvation of all people of all times. This is what it says in Revelation chapter 21. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God's purpose and plan is the salvation of the whole earth. Now, God has this authority and this this purpose, and it is difficult for us even to begin to comprehend. But what we can understand is that when we have an authority, that can lead to difficult decisions. That can lead to decisions that feel easy in some ways, but hard in other ways. If you are a parent, you will know that sometimes you make decisions that your children don't understand. They may think you're being unfair, but you know that you're doing it for their greater good. I'm a teacher. The same is true. You make decisions for your classes about what they can and can't do. And some people feel those decisions are unfair. One thing I often think is about politicians. And I think often politicians, we give them quite a hard run, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's good to keep them to account. But actually, I think the job of a politician is so difficult. You know, when they are looking to make a, a policy decision or a policy change and improve a situation, whatever sector we're talking about, you know, there will always be those people that are better off and those people that are worse off. I don't want to get too political, that's not what this platform is about, so I'm not talking here about particular governments, current or past, or particular policies. But if a government makes a policy in an area that is significant, and perhaps it's a really good policy, perhaps it's a policy that will benefit many people, that actually many people will be better off because of this policy, better off in their health, better off in their education, in whatever area of life. But there will always be those people that, with the same policy, are less well-off, are damaged by it, or are hurt by it. Perhaps in certain areas, a health policy or something like that, there are people who might even die as a result of that change in policy. It's a huge burden that we put on our governments to make these decisions that have literally those consequences. You know, health is a good example. Eh? They put more money and more investment into this area of health, but by doing that, they have to take it away from this area. And that means that people will suffer or even die as a result of it. Now, what is very easy is for someone, or for the media, or someone to find someone who's less well-off, who's suffered as a result of a policy, and say, well, look at this person. Look at the terrible thing that's happened to them. And obviously, we can feel huge sympathy for that situation. But to a degree, and it's a difficult thing to accept, but to a degree, the politicians have to try and keep this bigger picture. They have to look at the, the 60, 70 million people in the country and weigh up the needs of these with the needs of these whether it's an individual or a small group or even a community to try and balance those judgments sometimes they get it wrong of course they do but my point is this if that is true for politicians even when they are at their best that must be true for God because God's purposes and plans are so vast that actually there will always be those situations where because of a, as, a, as, a, as a result of God's purposes and plans, there will be those that, that you know, suffer as a result of them. You know, does this not start to provide a context or some moral justification for the actions, some of which we read about in the Old Testament? You know, God had this plan and this purpose to build and shape and protect a people. And that people grew up, and then through them, the Messiah would be born that would save the whole world. Now, that is a moral equation that i can't begin to balance in my mind how you protect that group of people against all the other forces around them that are both spiritual and physical but perhaps that's partly the point who am i really to question the effectiveness of god's strategy to say is god's strategy the best strategy is god's strategy the most ethical one you know having faith in god is more than just believing he exists it is and believing he exists, but also accepting that his actions, even those I can't understand, are in line with his character. Secondly, and more significantly, I would say this: you know, we must accept—and again, it seems so obvious—but we must accept that God is not human. Jesus was human, or in human form, but—and we find it—we find Jesus easy to relate to because of that. But sometimes, I think, when we try to think through these moral issues or these ethical issues what we like to think God is is a bit like me but without all the wrong bits so I think well what decision would I make if if I didn't have all these wrong you know kind of thoughts or desires you know if if I wasn't thinking personally or selfishly if I was just thinking for the good of all what with my intellect would I come up with as the right decision what would be the right thing to do the thing is God's most moral decisions are not the most moral decisions that we would make if we were in his position. God is not human. We are not God. God is an entirely different moral entity than we are. We have to appreciate God is an entirely different moral entity. You see, the problem with the Richard Dawkins passage is that he treats, and he even says, character in fiction. It's as if if he is talking about a human individual. And of course, if a human individual did those things... That God did, then they would be horrific. But God isn't a human doing those things. God is God. God created each and every human being who has ever lived and who will ever live. That makes them of a radically different standing than we are. You know, even parents, you need to know this you did not create your children. Okay? You merely took part in a kind of preordained biological exchange that led to the fusing. Of different life-containing cells. Okay, that—that that was it. I hope it was more enjoyable than that sounds. But <laughs> that is what ha- you didn't create life. God created life. God created the life in your children. God brought the whole universe into existence, and at some point in the future, at some time, He will bring the whole of existence and the whole of life on Earth as we know it at the moment to an end. This is what he says in Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now here's a question then. Well, what if God in his infinite wisdom and infinite planning and infinite time, what if that end was tomorrow? Tomorrow, the whole universe comes to an end as we know it. I can see some of you already thinking, well, I wouldn't wash the car this afternoon. Okay, well, let's think a little bit deeper. But, you know, what would that be an immoral thing for God to do? bring the whole universe to an end? Well, of course not. He created it. He brought it into being. It is his decision, his timing, when he brings it to conclusion. Now, if it's not immoral for him to do it for the whole of creation and the whole of the universe, is it therefore somehow more immoral for him to do it for an individual and to end their life or for a community or for a people group? You see, he is of a completely different moral order. We can't talk about him in the human terms that Richard Dawkins uses because he's not human. He is of a completely different moral order. So what conclusions can we draw from all this? You know, to best consider what is a difficult question, we must remember, first and foremost, that our understanding is limited. If we come to this expecting to be able to fully fathom everything out, then we will certainly be disappointed. And perhaps, if nothing else, this message has demonstrated how limited our understanding might be. But our understanding of Scripture is limited. You know, we, we do what we can to read it, to understand it, to, to base our lives upon it. But exactly how God inspired the different writers, those are things beyond our knowledge. And our knowledge of the person and purposes of God is limited. But God is Unlimited. God is the very definition of moral perfection. He is the same always. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the God of love, a God who created each and every one of us. He is the God who saved Noah. He is the God who fathered a people through Abraham and then taught and shaped them through Moses and their subsequent leaders, through Joshua. He is the one who brought his son into the world to be the ultimate revelation of himself. And that son who then died on the cross for each and every one of us so that we could be saved and brought back into covenant relationship with him. And that is why we worship and praise him. We may not fully understand him, but actually everything in our hearts cries out in worship to this supreme ultimate moral being that is revealed to us through scripture, that is revealed to us through the person of Jesus and is revealed to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And part of our role is to, in whatever way we can, take that revelation with us and out into the world around us. Because we as the church are also intended to be a revelation of God to the world around us. Just as we close, the band are gonna come up and we're gonna sing a final song of worship. And after we've done that, Rhiannon is gonna just make an appeal To anyone here who may never before have made that commitment to begin a relationship with God. you know This, in many ways, might not feel like a message that is brilliantly set up for people saying, yeah, I want to start that relationship with God today. But let me just say this. There are many reasons about why we can make that decision. There are many questions that you may have. This may have been one of the questions. There may be many other questions. We accept that. But becoming a Christian or starting that relationship with God isn't about saying, I've now got all the answers I need, now I can take that step. We believe that that step of becoming a Christian is that first step of starting a relationship with God. And the best way to further explore and understand and grapple with these questions is in the context of relationship with God. If you've never made that step, I would encourage you to make it this morning. Keep answering questions. Keep coming to the rest of this series, keep reading books, keep listening to messages, sign up for the Alpha Supper because more deep questions like this will be answered there. But don't delay starting that relationship with God because in the context of that relationship that is where we can truly find the answers that we need and find the relationship that God has created each and every one of us for. So if that speaks to you this morning We will give you that opportunity in a few minutes time. We're gonna stand and worship and then Rihanna will bring that bill. So Just prepare yourself through this song, if that is you, to make that response this morning. The rest of us, let's just stand now and pray as we sing. Father God, we thank you that as your word repeatedly states, you are a God of love. That when answering the question, who is God, Love is always the obvious and correct answer. You have demonstrated your love throughout your word, throughout our lives and throughout history. We thank you that we can worship you this morning. We thank you that none of our questions intimidate you or or confuse you, that we can bring our questions to you, and you are happy for us to explore, because in that we are seeking to know better the God within which we have relationship pray that through this morning but also through every message that follows in this series we will just find out more about you about your purposes about your plan for our lives about who you are and about who we are in you and I pray that many others who are not here this morning may hear these different messages and their lives may be changed as a result we pray this all in Jesus name